Escape, a work of fiction based on a true story. Part 4, Surrender and Return. We moved forward silently, a couple hundred more yards, to where there was a small clearing. From the feeling in my stomach, I knew something was about to happen. Then, I glanced to my left and realized that I was fully exposed from that direction, totally exposed. My only thought was, we've come all of this way, and now I'm going to get it. My next thought was what to do about my position. I quickly dropped flat to my belly and motioned for Bruce to do the same. As I dropped, I made some noise and I knew that my presence would be immediately detected. I did not know who or what was in that clearing. All I knew was that we did not have any weapons. I tried a bluff. One that I remembered from reading The Count of Monte Cristo. In a very loud voice, I shouted, Comrade! There was some noise in the clearing. Then I heard a deep voice responding, Ja, ja! It was clearly a German speaking. I shouted, Comrade! again. Unsure what response I would get. Then I hear a younger voice say, Americano, Rusky, Comrades! I stood up and marched triumphantly into the clearing. What an enemy! Two middle-aged German soldiers in charge of two horse-drawn quartermaster wagons. The horses were long gone, possibly to extend some outfit's rations. With the two Germans was a young Russian, probably only about fourteen, doubtless conscripted into quartermaster duties after his capture from the Russian front. He was flamboyant in his bright red uniform, 
and his personality was buoyant. And upon seeing me, he danced around merrily, repeating, Americano, Rusky, comrades. We embraced, and I signaled for Bruce to join the festivities. While the young Russian repeated the welcoming ceremony with him, I engaged the German soldiers in conversation, at the level of the American military pocket manual, of course. I asked, Wuestein weapons? They shrugged and said, Nine. No need to ask further. I continued with a few other questions. Principally, did they want to surrender? Their response conveyed a deeper knowledge of the war situation than any of us had. They knew what our clandestine radio summaries did not yet tell us. Like many Germans, they were anxiously awaiting the opportunity to do just that. We were the first Americans they encountered. Two POWs who had escaped from a prison work gang four days earlier. The cozy camp of our three Italian friends was located a couple miles north of a place called Sieben Armsäule. Even today, it is an isolated forest community, with only nature to recommend it. It had survived the ravages of the places around it, because there was nothing of strategic value there. A region preserved for centuries as a hunting preserve for Prussian nobility. Its lack of military value is probably why the German forester Walter chose it as a place of refuge for his family. Its isolation is also what had protected our Italian friends from discovery by the various German patrols. However, by the end of March 1945, it was in the middle of one of the most decisive stages of the war. To its west lies the industrial city of Leipzig. To its south lies Dresden. Most importantly, to its north lies Berlin. Allied troops had breached the Rhine defenses, and in a classic pincer operation, the American forces had trapped German Army Group B in the Ruhr, the industrial heart of the Reich. On Easter Sunday, more than 300,000 German soldiers, including the headquarters and support troops of Army Group B, most of the 15th Army, two corps of the 1st Parachute Army, and all of the 5th Panzer Army were trapped in the so-called Ruhr pocket. So you had Montgomery's troops racing across northern Germany, Russian troops forming a solid moving wall rolling from the east, and the Americans coming from the southwest. Saxony was now the principal focus of the war's activities. Seeing the decisive situation, Omar Bradley ordered his generals to move as quickly as possible, stopping for no reason. He wanted the war to end abruptly. After capturing my three prisoners of war and returning them back to the Italian's camp, 
we feasted on the liberated food supplies that we discovered in the German quartermaster wagons. The next morning, Bruce and I continued our exploration of the various forest trails. We discovered that there was a very passable dirt road that ran northeast, just two miles from the camp. I remember saying to Bruce, if I were a regiment's commander, I would use that road to convoy my heavy trucks up toward Berlin. We went back to camp and enjoyed another evening of plentiful food beside a warm campfire. Little did we know that the next afternoon, my prediction would come true. The dirt road would be filled with many large U.S. Army trucks. We thought we heard engine noises several times during the morning, but the noises were sporadic, and we were not sure. Finally, about noon, Bruce and I decided to explore. We headed for the dirt road we had found the day before. This time, to our pleasant surprise, there were trucks a large convoy of army trucks, and they were American. Bruce and I began waving our arms as quickly as we could. A captain in a jeep saw us and ordered his driver to pick us up. He motioned for us to climb in the back of the jeep and began a quick interrogation. His interrogation lasted maybe two minutes. Then he climbed out of the jeep and onto a passing half-track personnel carrier. Take them back to medical, he ordered. Then, he waved for the personnel carrier to get moving again. After all, General Omar Bradley had ordered his troops to move as quickly as possible, stopping for nothing. This captain was very determined to follow those orders. Maybe if the captain had interviewed us more thoroughly, he would have given the patrol he sent up to the Italian's camp more precise instructions. He didn't. Unfortunately, the patrol processed our Italian friends as if they were also German prisoners of war. A tragic mistake, one that I have often wished I could have rectified. I understand that the U.S. Army was processing hundreds of thousands of prisoners under the intense wartime pressures to end things quickly. Still, I wish things had turned out differently for them.
I soon learned a new acronym. RAMP, Returning American Military Personnel. Bruce and I were now a part of the massive ramp system. In total, about 100,000 American GIs would be liberated from German prisons and processed through the ramp system. It was literally an army within the larger army. We were first driven back to Divisional HQ. I remember passing through the gates of the compound and being cheered by other GIs. Word had spread quickly that some POWs had been liberated. They were happy to greet us with smiles and waves. For us, everything just smelled different. It smelled American. We were delivered to the medical staff who checked us over, helped us get a shower, and provided us with some new clothes. Then, after a stern warning about not eating too much, an orderly led us to the mess tent. If I ever get to heaven, I know what it will look like. Not streets of gold? No. Army green canvas over wooden tables and wonderful aromas that one can only imagine. The orderly stayed with us to help us carry our trays to our tables. I particularly remember a slice of bread with butter on it. It was as white as the snow on Mount McKinley, not the coarse brown kind we had seen so often in the Stalag. After our meal, we walked around the compound. There, along a fence line, I saw a familiar friend, or more accurately, a cousin of a dear friend. There was a skylark sitting on a nest, wholly oblivious to the activity around it. White bread and a nesting skylark, wonder of wonders, delight of delights. We stayed at the Division HQ for two days, where our buddy Harold also joined us. Then, we traveled by car across Germany to Strasbourg. Our driver was an excellent one, a sergeant who was originally from Spartanburg, South Carolina. When he was doing his regular army assignment, he was driving for five-star generals. We were special indeed. In Strasbourg, Bruce, Harold, and I boarded a C-47 and were flown to Camp Lucky Strike at Saint-Sylvain, Saint-Maritime, along the French coast, on the English Channel. During his medical examination, Harold was found to be suffering from malaria and was given quinine tablets that he had to take. Really terrible taste. Camp Lucky Strike was where the well-oiled ramp system really came into play, where the real processing began. We were fortunate we arrived early before the system became overwhelmed by liberated GIs. I now know that some 58,000 POWs went through Camp Lucky Strike during the spring and summer of 1945. The ramp system was created because Congress required the War Department to return any GI who had spent more than 60 days as a POW in a prison camp back to the United States rather than returning them to active service with their original units. Step one was a shower scrub and delousing. They did not miss a part of your body and the brushes were stiff. Still, it felt good to be really clean. Next, we were issued new gear that made us feel like soldiers again. We belonged to the United States Army. We were proud to wear its uniform. 
Over the next few days, we went through extensive medical examinations, x-rays, blood and urine tests, and inoculations, dental work, eyeglasses. Many ramps required hospitalization due to respiratory infections or malnourishment. Camp Lucky Strike had its own 350-bed hospital, and most wonderfully, the hospital was staffed by real female nurses. Who couldn't get better with their care? Unfortunately, some of the ramps had really serious problems that required long-term convalescence. Camp Lucky Strike was basically a field hospital, and many of its operations were conducted in tents. So, for these patients, the best options were to return them to England or send them on a hospital ship back to the U.S. The principal goal of Camp Lucky Strike was to help malnourished men regain their original strength and weight. The medical staff prepared meal cards that we had to show when we entered the mess hall, describing what and how much we could eat. One thing that the camp provided was lots of eggnog. Just inside each mess hall was a stainless steel barrel filled with freshly made eggnog. I didn't care much for the stuff, but Bruce loved it. He would immediately scoop a metal mess cup full of it and down it with a single gulp. Then while we ate, he would go back for more. The doctors had placed no restrictions on his diet. Harold, on the other hand, was required to drink a glass of orange juice with every meal. Then there were the donuts that the Red Cross provided. They probably made a couple hundred dozen several times a day. I knew some ramps who would eat a whole dozen at one time. The medical staff decided to limit donut consumption. They issued ration tickets that limited us to no more than three donuts at a time. However, the former POWs were masters at scamming the system. By barter and trade, some of us acquired many tickets, allowing an unlimited donut supply. There were large signs in the mess halls warning about overconsumption and the need to limit our food intake. Not everyone complied. Diarrhea was rampant. We stayed at Camp Lucky Strike until mid-June. Then we were given a three-day pass and we took the army bus down to Paris. What an incredible time. I recently heard a folk song that says, raspberry, strawberry, in the good wines you can trust. The Paris nights are warm and lush and visit it, every young man must. All I can say is we, we, yes, yes. When we returned to Camp Lucky Strike, we were shipped to La Harve, and there we boarded the USS Constitution for our return trip back to the USA. After La Harve, we sailed to Southampton, England, where we formed up with other ships as a convoy. The war continued. Unfortunately, not every German subcommander had agreed that the war was over. There was still a need for vigilance, and that meant attack, avoidance maneuvers. Before the war, the USS Constitution had been a luxury liner, and it was the largest ship in our convoy, a juicy target for revenge. Our convoy was accompanied by, I believe, four destroyers, which, I assume, were equipped with the very latest in sub-detection technology. Nonetheless, every three minutes, the USS Constitution switched directions. It was disconcerting until you became used to it. 
We spent most of the trip topside, watching the whales, the porpoise, the flying fish, and the beautiful flights of seabirds. The war seemed far away. We had left Boston Harbor in dense fog. However, we returned to New York in the brightest springtime. I will never forget seeing Lady Liberty glistening against a blue sky. A train met us at the dock and shuttled us to Penn Station. From there, I took a train home, home to Erie. My mother greeted me at Erie Station. We silently embraced. Then she surprised me with her first question. I guess I expected something like, How are you doing? Or what did you miss most? No. It was direct. Do you now have to go to the Pacific War? Do you have to fight there? I did not respond. I knew what they had gone through. She was worried. She wanted it over. Still, had I answered, I would have said, I will gladly go wherever my country asks me to go. This work of fiction is dedicated to Vernon J. Cumberland, Bruce Waldo, and Horace Cathay, who lived in real life the historical events used to create this work. Mm -hmm.